0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates.
1: The woman shivers on the ground next to him. He's asleep. His breath is even and deep. But she knows that all it would take is one snap of a twig for him to wake up. He made it clear that after spending time in prison, he doesn't sleep like other people anymore. He's always listening out for sounds, for approaching danger. She's seen what he's capable of, and she's not willing to risk her life. She'll wait until the time is right, and then hopefully she can escape his clutches. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 112, The Serial Crimes of Frank Ndebe. Hey, True Crime South Africa listeners. I'd like to tell you about a brand new South African podcast called Your Mom with Skalk. I love how the podcast landscape in South Africa is expanding, and I'm really pleased to be a part of that. The content in True Crime South Africa's episodes can be a little bit heavy though, so I think it makes complete sense to balance that out with some light-hearted fun. Skulk Bezadenhout is genuinely one of my favourite comedians and personalities, and now he has his own podcast. Hello there, all you crime junkies, you sickos.
0: It's Skulk beside note I'm sorry to interrupt the murder or the robbery or whatever heinous crime Nicole is telling you about, but I just wanted to tell you quickly about a new podcast that I'm hosting called Your Mom with Skulk. Hello, Meansa, and welcome to Your Mom with Skulk, a brand new podcast by Telltale Media, hosted by me, Skulk Persaid Note. Now, on this show, we're going to journey deep into the lives of really lucky people. Some of them are my friends. Some of them I wish were my friends. But I don't want to speak to these exceptional people, these celebrities directly. I mean, here, look at Menze. I think we are all so tired of listening to celebrities. Everyone and their mother, excuse the pun, has a podcast where they interview celebrities. So we're not going to speak to the celebrities directly, but rather about the celebrities through the people that know them better than anyone, which is, of course, their mothers. I am sitting here, Menze, in the house, of Tanigale Gail Goliath. I am sitting in the house of Jack Barrow, Bertus Bassone, Simone Bretourius and her ongelooflike maat Tani Tinky. Laclau's. Laclau. Laclau, oh, sorry, my bad. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> the woman of the hour for me is... The Queen. The Queen.
1: Because my favorite words are,
0: f***ing f- You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for the journalist to hear that. This is who I want to speak to. Their mothers. Your favorite word is f- but you don't like tattoos. too is die Subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or check us out at telltale.media forward slash skulk. I mean, it would be a crime not to anyway back to you nicole donkey
1: i highly recommend you go follow skulks podcast right now on whatever platform you're listening on before we get into today's episode i'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through patreon or paypal recently a huge thank you goes out to morgan Rhoda, Vuzumsi, jonathan brearley odette jahar michael linden Karen Egan, Sandra Cowell, and Zaza Lelu for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support everyone, it really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month as well as an ad-free version of every week's episode, check out the link to Patreon in the show notes and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the discount code TCSA10 or True Crime respectively when purchasing on their websites. And you'll get a 10% discount too. Or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book, Samurai Sword Murder, in hard copy, ebook or audiobook formats as well as the audiobook I narrated for Janne of the Krugersdorp cult murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable, so please share and invite your friends to listen. When we think about serial murderers, we picture lone wolf-type offenders who kill on their own and continue on that way to ensure they don't get caught. Occasionally, as we've seen in some cases I've covered here, Serial killers will work in partnerships, and that's always a complex dynamic to analyze. Never though, in any serial case I've covered so far, have I seen what we're about to. A victim taken hostage and forced to accompany the serial killer on his rampage. Although in the sources I drew research from the surviving victims are named... I'm going to be using pseudonyms for them, as they're rape survivors, and in accordance with Section 335A of the Criminal Procedure Act, they are afforded the right to anonymity unless they choose otherwise themselves, or unless a magistrate rules otherwise. In researching this case, I used a chapter from the book Strangers on the Streets by Mickey Pistorius, and a few media articles I could find. So let's get into Episode 112. The Serial Crimes of Frank Ndebe.
0: The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes.
1: Frankendebe was born on the 17th of August 1968 in Mpumalanga. As is the case with so many South African families, Frank's mother and father both had to travel to other provinces to find work, so Frank was left to be raised by his grandmother on a farm called Lowe's Creek between Malelane and Barberton. Unfortunately, He would later claim his grandmother had some odd ideas about raising children, especially boys. And if we're looking for strange childhoods in the backgrounds of serial murderers, we don't have to look very far in Frank's case. Frank would later claim that his grandmother had been obsessed with preventing him from masturbating, and as such, had developed an elaborate ritual to ensure he did not masturbate during the night. The older woman would tell her grandson that if he masturbated during the night, the taste of her tobacco would be affected when she smoked in the morning. So each morning when he woke, she would smell his penis to ensure he had not ejaculated, and then she knew she could smoke her tobacco. Her punishments for other things she felt he was doing wrong were equally strange. If the boy came home late from school... She would wait until 3am the next morning and then wake him up screaming and chase him into a nearby river with a knopkiri, a traditional African weapon which is a thick stick with a large heavy ball shaped on the end, used in battle to incapacitate attackers. She would make the boy wait in the river, regardless of how cold it was, until it was time for him to go to school, and only then would she let him out. Perhaps thanks to this strange and difficult childhood, Frank had always adored his mother and couldn't wait for her to visit. When she did, and he did something that angered her, he claimed that he would punish himself by cutting the skin over his heart with a knife until it bled. He also reported regularly having nightmares where he was lowered into a grave in a coffin Despite the difficulties he experienced, Frank did have some normal childhood experiences too. Although he was forced to leave school in grade 9 and start working due to economic circumstances, Frank loved reading, and when he wasn't working as a gardener, he dreamed of becoming a film producer. He was enthralled with the lives of celebrities, and one day hoped he too would be a star. Of course... Frank's name would become known, but for all the wrong reasons. In 1990, when Frank was 22, he fell foul of the law for the first time in a pretty serious way. And, in my opinion, this was a huge missed opportunity to stop what would come later. During that time, a serial rapist had been active in Komatipuat in Pumalanga. Numerous women had fallen victim to the serial offender when Frank Ndebe was arrested after two of the victims had recognised him from the area. Now, there are two really unfortunate things here in a pool of really unfortunate things. Firstly, Frank could only be linked to two of the rapes because we were not regularly using DNA in South Africa at that point. Secondly, we didn't have the Minimum Sentences Act in place, or any real understanding within the courts of the nature of serial offenders, especially sexual offenders, and how the possibility of rehabilitation for them is very low. So, not only did Frank get a very light sentence, he would serve just eight years for both rapes, but when he was paroled, there was little to no concern that the prospect of him reoffending was extremely high. Although I regularly speak about the failings of our current justice and parole system, it is cases like this that make me realise how far we've actually come. Yes, we still have a long way to go. But at least we are no longer sentencing serial rapists to eight years and we now understand the nature of serial offenders and sentence them as such, even if our parole boards still need to have a far better understanding of that. Unfortunately, Frank's experience in prison would also seem to contribute to his later reoffending, and his increasingly violent behaviour. Frank would admit that he'd been raped in prison, and he was also exposed to pornography, he claimed, for the first time. Now, I want to briefly touch on Frank's own experience of rape. I often see on social media when a sex offender gets sentenced, people comment things like, I hope the same thing happens to him in prison. I understand that anger. I get why people want rapists and other violent offenders to suffer as much as possible. But I also think that we need to really think about what we're actually asking for here. We're hoping that a human being is sexually violated. But we're also doing that because we think perhaps this will make a sex offender somehow realize what they did to their victims. And the truth is, it won't. It won't serve the purpose we want it to, because rape is about power and not sex. So when a sex offender is raped, he experiences that removal of his power in that moment. He's not thinking, oh, this must be how my victims felt, and is suddenly filled with remorse. He's more likely thinking, I've just had power taken away from me, So in turn, I am now going to double up my efforts to take power from others. So, maybe we should be careful what we wish for. Just a thought. Frank Ndebe was paroled in December 1998. He returned to live in Barberton. His parents had distanced themselves from him when he was arrested, and he was living on his own with little contact with family members. On the 16th of January 1999, just a month after he was released from prison, a warden from the prison he'd been jailed at, noticed a woman, who I'll refer to as Maria, walking down the rural road he was jogging down. Then, just metres behind the woman, he saw a face he recognised, Frank Nebe. We don't know whether the warden had any actual concerns about Ndebe's actions that day, but he did call out to him and stopped him for a chat. The men sat shooting the breeze for a while, and then they said goodbye, and Frank continued on. If the warden had had any worries about Frank and his proximity to Maria, perhaps he'd thought that just delaying him would make the difference, or perhaps... The conversation itself was enough to convince the warden that Frank was not a danger that day. Perhaps the man had no concerns at all, and simply wanted to chat. Either way, Frank Ndebe continued on his way. As the warden jogged away and out of sight, Frank increased his pace, and soon caught up to Maria. He attacked the woman, dragging her into the bushes, tying her hands and raping her. He held Maria for an hour until two women walking past heard her screams and scared Frank off. He realised that if they went to police, he would be easily identified by the prison warden, so he left the area, fleeing to an informal settlement near Buttplass. Frank would later blame Maria and the two women who'd rescued her for him having to relocate, and that alone is absolute proof that his own rape experience had zero impact on his behaviour as a sex offender. He'd gained no insight into his own crimes by being a victim of the same crime himself. In his new location, Frank Ndebe met a woman named Emma Skosana, Emma was 23 years old and had a one-year-old son. She and Frank became friendly, and four months after meeting him, Frank asked her if she'd like to go on a trip with him to Nelsprate. Emma agreed, and informed Frank that she'd be taking a friend of hers along, who we'll refer to as Cindy. I've wondered about this move by Emma. She'd known Frank for four months. There seemed to have been enough time for her to decide whether or not she trusted him enough to go on a trip with him. But still, she didn't seem completely happy being on her own with him. Of course, we don't know what Frank had promised the women. For South African serial killers, one of the most common forms of lures is job offers. Sadly, in a country where our unemployment rate is at 36%, at last measure, there are very many people desperate enough to go along with something when the possibility of employment is dangled before them, and that could be another reason that Emma had wanted Cindy to accompany them. On the 11th of April 1999, Frank, Emma, Cindy and Emma's one-year-old son set out on foot for nelsbright After some time, quite understandably, The young child became irritated with the beating heat and began to cry. Frank became annoyed at the child's crying, and while Emma was trying to comfort the boy, Frank suddenly grabbed Cindy, dragged her into the bushes, and raped her. Emma, horrified but likely knowing it was pointless to try and run with her son, cowered on the side of the road when Frank returned from raping her friend. When Frank saw Emma's reaction, he became enraged. He began to assault Emma, tied her up, and would eventually strangle both Emma and her baby son to death. As Cindy stumbled out of the bushes after being attacked by Frank, she saw what he'd done to her friend and her child. Frozen in terror, she followed Frank's instructions to help him conceal the bodies in the bushes and then, Frank told her, she was coming with him. This would be the beginning of a journey of horror for Cindy. Terrified from the attack and rape on her, having witnessed the murders of her friend and young son, Cindy now felt she had no choice but to follow Frank Ndebe wherever he told her to go. For the next few hours until darkness fell, Cindy walked silently beside Frank. They would sleep in the felt that night, and continued on the next morning. Cindy would endure regular beatings and additional rapes from Ndebe throughout the night. Finally, he fell asleep, and she lay shivering with fear in the dirt beside him, too scared to move or attempt an escape. Although Frank had claimed that they were headed to Nelsprayt, Cindy noticed that when they got to the road that would lead them there, he continued past it. And soon, they arrived in Pinar, at the home of Frank's sister. By this point, Cindy had been held captive by Frank for almost three full days. She was still completely terrified into silence and didn't say anything in Frank's sister's presence. They spent one night there and on the morning of the 15th of April, Frank told Cindy they were returning to Place. They were on the road for the next two days, sleeping in the felt, and on the 17th they were able to hitch a ride into Carolina. There, on the side of the road, Frank saw a woman walking. This victim would sadly never be identified, but Cindy was made to watch as Frank dragged the woman into the bushes, bound her hands, and raped her. Frank then strangled the woman until she was dead and stole her clothing. Leaving the woman's body in the bushes, he and Cindy continued on along the road. They once again slept in the felt that night, and the next morning Frank instructed Cindy to change into the clothing he'd stolen from the previous day's murder victim. Cindy hadn't wanted to, but she saw Frank's anger starting to bubble up again and relented. At 3pm that day, they took a taxi to Middleburg and from there walked to Nkodwana. They slept rough again that night, but by 6am the next morning, the pair were at the Place barberton intersection. 45-year-old Zodwa Xiongwa was walking near the intersection at the same time. Frank attacked almost as soon as he saw her, dragging her into the bushes. As he did, he told Zordwa that he was going to kill her. The woman begged for her life, trying to make eye contact with Cindy, who covered her face to hide from the horror in an attempt to plead with her for assistance. Frank ignored the woman's pleas, tied her up and strangled her. He stole the woman's handbag which contained some cash and ordered Cindy to continue on down the road with him. Along the way, Cindy begged Frank to let her go home. Perhaps it was an additional murder that had spurred her desperation or maybe the fact that she was so close to home that she could taste freedom. Frank ignored Cindy's pleas, though, and flagged down a car. The driver agreed to give them a lift back into Buttplass. Near the town, Frank told the driver to pull over and drop them off on the side of the road, which he did. They made it just a few hundred metres up that road before a police van pulled over. The officers searched Frank and asked Cindy if her parents knew where she was. Cindy asked the officers if they would take her home. They agreed and put her and Frank in the back of the van. Cindy had repeatedly promised Frank that if he let her go she wouldn't tell anyone what he'd done. Frank's agreement to accept a ride from police that day is interesting. I can only assume that he realised He couldn't force cindy to stay with him in the presence of police without raising red flags and if he let her go on her own he would undoubtedly be putting handcuffs on himself perhaps going with her was his way of attempting to control what she did perhaps he was hoping the cops would just drop them off and drive away but when they pulled up to cindy's home a place she likely thought she'd never see again, the dam broke for her. As soon as the door to the van opened, she sprung out, pulled on the officer's arm and told him she needed to talk to him. What followed was a story that both officers struggled to believe at first. A tale of rape, murder, assault, abduction and theft that had spanned a single week. She told the officers that the clothes she was dressed in belonged to a woman Frank had murdered in Carolina. As Cindy's parents came out of the house and embraced their daughter, listening to her tale of horror, they assured the officers that their daughter must be telling the truth. She was an honest girl, and they confirmed that Emma and her one-year-old son had not returned to the community. Perhaps realising that they would be foolish not to at least try and confirm the story, the officers placed Frank, who stood completely quiet, listening to Cindy tell her story to police, under arrest. He was placed in the back of the van, and because Cindy couldn't remember exactly where Emma and her son were, she directed police to the unidentified victim in Carolina to prove her story. As the two officers entered the bushes and smelled the unmistakable stench of death, they realised they had a very peculiar situation on their hands. Frank Ndebe was taken into custody that day. Cindy's full statement was taken and her injuries were recorded and a rape kit was administered. On the 20th of April, Captain Tinas Rousseau of Nelspruit Murder and Robbery, was asked to head up the investigation. The man had received training from the investigative psychology unit of the SAPS in the investigation of serial offence cases, and he was the perfect man for what seemed to be the latest in a spate of South African serial killings. After a brief interview with Frank Ndebe, the man agreed to show Rousseau where he'd left the bodies. The pointing out would be done with an officer not related to the case to ensure that there was no question that Ndebe had not been guided or coerced during the pointing out. He took officers to the bodies of Emma Skosana and her baby son, as well as the body of Zodwa Shongwa. Interestingly, and this is not uncommon with serial offenders, although Frank would readily admit to the rapes and murders of the adult women, he adamantly denied killing Emma's baby son and also refused to admit having beaten the women. When it was later revealed that in his first stint in prison, Frank had become involved in a prison gang and gained quite a high rank before he was paroled, some believed that perhaps he didn't want his fellow gang members to know he'd murdered a child or beaten women. Although clearly, Holding them hostage, raping and murdering them was quite okay, with both Frank's warped sense of honour and the gangs. In November 2000, though, when he was officially asked to plead to the rape of Maria, the rape, abduction and assault of Cindy, and four murders, he pled guilty to all charges. As you would have picked up in previous cases where serial offenders confess initially, this is one of the few cases where the offender actually followed through and didn't try to retract his confession or pointing out or claim he was coerced. I could be wrong but I almost get the feeling that Frank was ready to go back to prison and he didn't quite see the point of drawing it out any longer. After a short recess, Justice de Clark handed down a sentence that was far more fitting than the last Frank had received. Sadly though, three women and a child had had to lose their lives, and two more women had their lives forever changed, in order for his level of threat to society to be properly acknowledged. In total, Frank was handed down seven life sentences, plus 46 additional years. His trial and sentencing lasted 45 minutes in total. He was sent back to Barberton Prison to begin serving his sentence and likely resumed his position in the prison gang there too. As I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, one of the things that makes Frank Ndebe quite unique as a South African serial offender is the fact that he took a female hostage along when he committed his crimes. The only other known serial offender in the country to have done this is Elias Msomi, the so-called axe killer, who was convicted in 1955 of 15 murders. Msomi also abducted one of his victims and took her along for some of his murders. I do wonder why Frank did not kill Cindy, or if he'd intended to at some point and just didn't get around to it before police arrested him. Perhaps he'd intended to kill her on that very stretch of road they were stopped on by police. Or had Cindy done a good enough job of convincing him that she wouldn't tell anyone what he'd done, that he'd believed her and was going to let her go home? Either way, as much as so much of this episode has been focused on Frank and what he did, The hero in this tale is Cindy. I don't think any one of us could ever imagine what it must have been like to have endured what she did. The abject terror of not only being attacked and raped yourself, but watching your friend and her baby son be murdered, and then having no choice but to continue on with this murderer and rapist and watch as he continued to attack and kill other women. Many may wonder why Cindy didn't just run. But considering how rural the area was that they were travelling in, she did the absolutely smartest thing she could have. If she'd attempted to run, Frank would have caught up to her. And he would have killed her. There is no doubt in my mind of that. And then, not only would she have lost her life, but he definitely would not have stopped he would have continued on to do what he did and if she had not had the bravery to speak to those police officers that day he likely would have taken many more lives. Usually we talk about the detectives that solved serial killer cases as being the heroes of the story but in this case if it wasn't for Cindy who was just 22 years old I have no doubt that Frank and would have gone on to rape and kill many more women. The victims he'd taken up until that point were pretty well hidden, and it would have taken some time for anyone to stumble upon their bodies, and even then they would likely not have been tied together as part of a series for quite a while, and in that time Frank would have just continued killing, again and again and again. But Cindy, as terrified and traumatized as she was, put a stop to that. Frank Ndebe may have had no value for the lives of the women he murdered, but he underestimated the power of a young woman he thought he could destroy. Cindy, wherever you are today, 23 years later... I hope that you have used that incredible strength to move forward and leave the ghost of Frank Ndebe in the cage where he belongs. I hope that you have held your head up high and owned the powerful role you played in bringing this killer to justice. I hope the past 23 years have been filled with all of the joy, peace, and happiness you deserved. Emma Scosana, Baby Scosana, Carolina Doe, Zordwa Shongwa. Rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode one hundred and twelve, the serial crimes of Franken Debbie. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.